From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. The Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits the government from requiring a criminal defendant to pay excessive bail in order to get out of jail before trial. Yet, right now, about 450,000 people across the country are in pretrial detention, and the collateral consequences of detention can affect a defendant's employment status, housing situation, and mental health, just to name a few things. For about 40 years, the right to reasonable bail in the federal criminal justice system has been administered under the Bail Reform Act, the Pretrial Services Act, and relevant case law. Bail is also a right at the state level, but the use of money bail has raised significant concerns about the system's fairness in many jurisdictions. In the face of this controversy, several states, including those as diverse as Kentucky, Colorado, and New Jersey, have changed their laws to reduce the use of money bail. And while that may be an improvement, it hasn't cured the problem of inequality in the system. Indeed, money bail hasn't existed in the federal system for decades, but federal pretrial detention rates remain stubbornly high, even though the vast majority of federal defendants pose relatively little risk of flight or danger. Why is that? And what more can be done to create federal and state bail systems that are truly fair? Our two guests have been working on the front lines of the criminal justice system for years, trying to answer those questions. And because the problems and solutions are difficult and complicated, we've divided our discussion into two parts. In this episode of Off Paper, we'll discuss the connection between mass detention and mass incarceration and issues surrounding the use of risk assessment tools. Then in our next episode, the discussion will turn to bail reform efforts at the state level, issues regarding jails, and the collateral consequences of pretrial detention. To help us explore all of that, we're joined by Chris Dozier, the Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer for the District of New Jersey. She's been with the agency for 28 years and has served as chief since 2004. Also joining us is Cherise Fano-Berdine, Chief Executive Officer of the Pretrial Justice Institute. PJI's mission is to advance safe, fair, and effective pretrial justice practices and policies that honor and protect all people. Sharice has spent over 20 years working to improve public safety policies and practices across the country. We're going to have a cool conversation about some hot stuff, folks, so keep it right here and don't touch that dial. Sharice and Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you. To start us off... um, I want to read you a quote uh, from an article by senior U.S. District Judge James Carr, which appeared in the April 2017 issue of the Federal Sentencing Reporter, uh, and I want to get your response to it. So here it is. According to Judge Carr, quote, mass incarceration is a consequence in part of mass and often unnecessary pretrial detention. Success on release means less prison time and may mean no prison time at all. Why, then, are detention rates in so many districts so high, while in others they are significantly lower? The causes, I believe, are many. And many, judges, pretrial services officers, and defense counsel, may each have his or her own share of the responsibility for unnecessary detention and its impact on mass incarceration. End quote. Chris, first, do you agree or disagree? And assuming you at least agree somewhat, tell us why. I most certainly agree. Um, Unfortunately, 
we have been talking about this discussion for quite some time that the federal system, while having very good uh, federal law when it comes to pretrial release, um, unfortunately still detains at an extremely high rate. Uh, about 50% of our population nationally are detained prior to trial um, when we um, remove those illegal aliens from the equation that aren't eligible for release. It's, it's actually about 75% um, of, of all defendants, if you counted the illegals. But um, um, just focusing on those who are eligible for release, um, and a lot of these cases are low-risk cases, and yet um, a good number of them are detained pretrial as well. So some of the reasons for this since 30-plus um, years ago in the Salerno decision when preventive detention was established, um, it's been going up steadily. There have been more um, violent drug and gun cases prosecuted in the federal system. Um, the presumptions of detention and mandatory minimum sentences have driven this. Um, but truly the biggest driver is culture. Uh, the culture in individual districts is really the biggest driver of whether they have high release rates or not. Unfortunately, the release rates differ um, around the nation anywhere from 25 to 85%. And what we really need to educate our stakeholders about is that those who are released do very well. Our noncompliance rates are extremely low. And, um, and the evidence speaks to the issue of those who are detained pretrial also uh, tend to get more jail and longer jail sentences at sentencing. There is federal research um, that speaks to this issue, and detained defendants are not only more likely to get custodial sentences, uh, but they're more likely to fail post-conviction. There's increased recidivism rates post-conviction when defendants are detained pretrial. Even very brief periods of time, 24 hours, increases pretrial failure. Uh, so that is the... Um, the problem that we face and that we've been trying to uh, impact for quite some time now, and I think there is a new appreciation um, of the fact that the, the release detention decision is possibly the most important decision in a criminal defendant's um, process. I, I have certainly heard some defense attorneys say that, um, and some, some judges appreciate it. Um, and the reason for that is because by having the opportunity for release and to participate in some of the programming that's available to defendants upon release, like treatment and, and job placements and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and participation in diversion programs and specialty courts, they have the opportunity to put their best foot forward when that time eventually comes for sentencing, provided they're convicted, and in the federal system, 90-plus uh, percent are convicted. Um, so, in fact, there was a New Jersey Supreme Court decision recently that spoke to the issue of 
the person standing before the judge on the date of sentencing. There was a challenge to whether they, the judge would consider the person at arrest, but in fact, it, it reinforced that that person speak, uh, standing before the judge on the date of their sentence is the person that the judge should take those factors about risks to the community and such into consideration. Mm-hmm. So I most certainly do agree with that statement. Thank you. So, Sharice, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts about this. From, at, from your position at PJI, you're really sort of able to see the whole playing field here, both national and federal. Uh, what are your reactions to to Judge Carr's um, to Judge Carr's uh, statement? So, like Chris, um, you know, I definitely agree with Judge Carr's assessment. Um, I think it, it is the number one thing Chris said is culture. Um, and we see that, you see all that in the federal system, we see that across the states and uh, in, in counties across the country as well. Um, regardless, sometimes regardless of having the best tools at their disposal, um, jurisdictions will still have a culture of detention. And unlike the federal system, that culture of detention in the states and at the county level um, is mostly exercised through the application of money bond. So low amounts of bond are um, still often resulting in as much detention as uh, maybe some people think um, that hundreds of thousands of dollars in bonds are resulting in detention. Um, but we see as little as 50 or 75 or $100 bonds being set on individuals uh, who have no ability to make that bond, uh, resulting in their detention. Mm-hmm. And often those are low-risk individuals who would perform quite well, um, simply being released on their own recognizance and reminded to come to court. Thank you. Um, so, Chris, I, you know, Judge Carr in his um, in his assessment uh, focused specifically uh, on pretrial services officers, in addition to judges and defense counsel. And obviously, I'd like to drill down with you a little bit in light of your position uh, as chief in New Jersey of pretrial uh, in the district, federal district court. Um, I, I t- wanted to focus with you about the responsibility of pretrial services officers. Um, first, could you articulate? that responsibility and talk about whether, based on your experience, not just in New Jersey, but in the federal system generally, whether you think pretrial services agencies and officers, you know, where you think they're doing well, certainly, but where you think they're doing less well and might be contributing to high detention rates. And here I want to sort of get at that issue of, you know, the culture of the district. I mean, if there is significant uh, variation in release and detention rates uh, among the districts in the federal system, um, you know, what what could explain that in terms of the role of the pretrial services officer? Certainly. Uh, so pretrial services officers are officers of the court. We work for the judges, and we are objective fact finders for the federal judges. We conduct uh, bail investigations to inform the judicial officers prior to the release detention decision, and we provide objective recommendations regarding the risks of non-appearance or danger that each defendant may present. And uh, once a recommendation for release is uh, made and and the court orders release, officers uh, monitor and supervise those conditions of release. So uh, the 
the bad news is that, as I expressed before, these release rates vary um, significantly across the country. And um, officer recommendations also vary. We see those recommendations sometimes um, very consistent with the government's recommendations as well. And it concerns about whether officers are rubber stamping government recommendations or if the officer themselves doesn't really um, believe in the defendant's right to bail and understands the, um, the research that demonstrates that our supervision done well addresses those um, risk factors very well. And the vast majority of defendants are low risk. Many don't need any um, oversight at all to show up and remain uh, crime-free. So the concern is in certain districts with the culture, um, whether officers are responding to the government's recommendation, whether they are anticipating judges' wishes rather than just having conviction in their in their work and in their recommendation, and they should stand by those recommendations. Research shows that judges are more likely to release defendants if pretrial recommends it. So they are listening to us. They recently did a bail report um, study with the with the starting with a survey with the judges, and it showed that the judges really rely upon our information in their decision making. So it's very important that our own officers um, believe in our ability to um, address the risks. Um, and um, we have a um, we have we have excellent resources for the supervision practice. So um, I think the good news is that we are starting to take um, a better approach to informing our stakeholders about um, our alternatives to detention, about our good outcomes with those supervision and release practices. And um, we're collaborating, the field is collaborating with both our administrative office, probation and pretrial services office in Washington and with the FJC to help educate our stakeholders. Uh, the AO has a, a drop program, which is detention reduction outreach program, where a team goes out and peer-to-peer they are speaking to our judges and our federal prosecutors and our defense bar uh, and our pretrial officers and informing them about um, our, our release outcomes. The fact of the matter is, particularly low-risk cases, um, which a great number are in our system, are, are succeeding at rates of 95-plus percent. So uh, judges um, particularly should be mindful of um, what the science says. Um, so in addition to that, the FJC is doing evidence-based decision-making for judges. Um, we're seeing more and more research that's informing us. So, for instance, uh, the presumption of detention is a factor that drives high detention in our system. And again, culture and district when it comes to 
examples such as this. A district such as New Jersey, which releases cases, although there is a presumption of detention, we recognize that we can manage those risks very well and those people are getting released and doing very well. And some districts that won't even interview a defendant if there's a presumption they've made a decision that um, it's likely a detention case. Uh, so a recent study was done with these cases and they found particularly in the lower risk categories that uh, presumption cases were being detained at about 20% higher. So this um, information was brought to our criminal law committee and they endorsed us going to Congress and asking that the presumptions of detention on certain cases, the vast majority being drug cases, um, be rescinded. So it's, it's um, evidence like that that helps inform our districts and we really need to see the officers embracing it and having the conviction to take that to the, to the court and to our stakeholders when making um, good objectives. Uh, assessments and, and recommendations. Interesting. So, Sharice, I'm I'm interested in in your perspective, um, especially because of your knowledge about what's been going on at the state and local level, uh, and how those systems work. And and I, I'm I've always been fascinated by the fact that as professionals, we sometimes make. Uh, distinctions between federal and state systems as if they don't interact with each other. But of course, our our criminal justice system nationally is intertwined. Um, and so, um, for example, it's fairly common for federal pretrial officers to have previous experience working in state systems where detention is the norm. So I wonder whether you think that has an impact on detention rates in the federal system. Um, gosh, that's a good question. I- I don't, I'm not sure. I, I think a lot of the issues that Chris raised um, uh, are, are probably um, as intertwined sure. uh, as any. I think that um, the disconnect many people have between the notion that um, folks are sort of safe enough to be released into the community will show up for court and do so without um, having to put up a financial um, either sort of ransom, as I call it, which is the 10% people owe in order to be able to actually even get out of jail pre-trial, um, or this notion that we need to have folks on loss of onerous conditions uh, in order to protect the public and uh, to ensure people come to court. I think that culture is sort of just pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would suggest, too, that in many jurisdictions you see folks uh, working in the system who kind of um, move between the juvenile and the adult systems as well. Um, and in some of those cases of culture shock, you know, we've had 25 years of reform in juvenile pretrial detention, and often people will go into the adult system and see, oh, we don't do assessments, we don't have alternatives, um, uh, this is unusual because last week where I worked across the street, literally, um, you know, we had all of those options available. And there's a presumption of non-custodial or non-secure detention for kids. Um, and so I think that, you know, many of these systems should have a lot more interaction and sharing a lot of um, experiences across the – I know we're going to talk a little bit about New Jersey, mm-hmm. um, and I think one of the successful strategies in the – cultural awareness or consciousness raising in New Jersey was about talking about 
the juvenile state and federal systems uh, as being um, things that um, are intertwined and people can learn from the experiences and what's been successful. Um, one other thing I just want to um, uh, kind of emphasize that uh, Chris mentioned was around um, the culture of pretrial services officers. Um, and I can't speak to the federal culture of pretrial services offices, but, but I do know that in jurisdictions across the country, um, you see very similar uh, concerns um, around, um, you know, no one wants to go into court, make a recommendation um, based on an assessment and um, essentially have um, a reaction caused by the court um, day in and day out where uh, those recommendations are either not aligned with what the court wanted to do anyway um, or uh, sort of cause you to feel like you're not doing your job well because your compliance rate or your concurrence rate um, with the court is so low. And so I think we, we eventually end up kind of beating system actors into compliance with the culture that exists. It's very difficult to change a culture, especially as you're coming into it being trained on the job um, and you watch the folks ahead of you make recommendations to the court that may not be evidence-based um, but are viewed positively by uh, the system. And so you sort of begin to learn uh, that in order to have a successful day at the office, um, uh, you essentially are recommending things that the court will accept. Um, and recently we've seen this in, in bail reform across the country where as folks go to courses at NAPSA or the National Institute of Corrections or at our office and are learning about legal and evidence-based practice, they're having a lot of difficulty going back into their environments um, and watching kind of the, the lack of um, awareness by the system um, to, these, to these things that we're teaching them are the right things to do. Um, and and we're, we, you know, we're, we're noticing that um, folks are having to decide whether or not they will put forward um, recommendations that align with evidence-based practice um, and run the risk, actually, of running into conflict with their systems. So uh, difficult, for sure, to change the culture uh, in, a, in a district or in a jurisdiction. Um, however, it sounds like it, it is happening in some jurisdictions. And so just to sort of, um, you know, drive that point home a little bit, practically speaking, um, maybe Sheree's starting with you and then interested to get Chris's um response here too. Are there, in addition to what you've talked about, you know, are there intentional or purposeful things uh, a jurisdiction can do in order to begin to change that culture? So I certainly think so. Um, otherwise, I, I probably would have left this job a long time ago. Um, so I will say that uh, there are a lot of bright spots across the country. And, um, you know, we kind of take no credit for anything other than trying to compile the lessons learned by jurisdictions across the country. There are a number of initiatives and a number of funding sources that are helping jurisdictions uh, move in the direction of implementation of legal and evidence-based practice. Um, and I think what we see is sort of a standard um, kind of change process that a jurisdiction will go through. Um, you know, I kind of hate to, to make this analogy, but it's sort of like the first step to recovery is recognizing you have a problem. Um, <laughs> I've heard that and, somewhere before. Yeah, and, and so sometimes a jurisdiction will realize it has a problem 
either because they're being sued uh, or uh, in, in, in actually Judge Carr's uh, hometown uh, where he um, uh, is, a, is a judge in Toledo. You have, you know, Lucas County under a federal consent decree for decades now, 40 years or something ridiculous. Mm. Um, so there are, there are lots of sometimes outside pressures that force a jurisdiction to look at what it's doing and its practices. Um, sometimes it is just a champion who happens to go to a class, go to a lecture, come home and say, I want to know what we're doing because I just learned this stuff and I want to see how it compares to how we're doing things here. So kind of regardless of the recognition, you can't really sort of tell a jurisdiction it has a problem. It has to come upon that, I think, in, in and you can help it, but identifying that as, as a motivating factor Um Sometimes it's about the size of the jail or wanting to build a new jail or having too many people currently in jail um, or even the recognition that there is a subpopulation within the jail that uh, is um, uh, either causing an issue or, or folks don't believe they belong in there, mental illness, um, substance abuse, stuff like that. So, so some of the bright spots in the country involve jurisdictions looking to see kind of how they compare uh, to legal and evidence-based practice, identifying for themselves sort of what is the what is what is our our ideal state of pretrial justice in this jurisdiction and then mapping the distance between where they are now and where they'd like to be um, and being as concrete as possible about where they'd like to be so is there some sort of ideal release rate that they're trying to achieve is there some ideal um, racial and ethnic um, parity issue that they're trying to accomplish um, and then what are the tools that are necessary? And, and, you know, I'll just sort of go ahead and raise it now because I can't imagine we'd get through this entire conversation without raising it. Um, but, you know, part of the toolbox that we encourage people to, to populate includes an assessment tool. And, and pretrial assessment tools today, um, even though they've been in use for, for decades um, in different forms, uh, are causing a lot of conversation around racial disparity and racial bias. Um, and uh, But it remains, uh, from our perspective, an incredibly pragmatic culture change tool. Um, the, I think Chris sort of said presumption of detention. You know, in many courts, there's this presumption of high risk, that everyone must be high risk. And so part of this tool of using an assessment tool is to actually change the culture within the courts uh, on really understanding what low risk uh, most people present um, with return rates, um, you know, at, at least 70% or higher even for the, quote, highest risk folks. And in terms of uh, new criminal activity while on release, um, even folks who score the highest number on any assessment tool, whether it's federal, Virginia, um, the Arnold Foundation's new tool, at most folks are a 50-50%, um, 50% likely uh, to be arrested for a new crime. So, so the culture of risk in the pretrial stage is sort of exaggerated. Um, um, and, and so we try to help jurisdictions kind of walk through this process, um, show them using their own data um, what the profile is of the folks that are being arrested. Um, and, you know, just to throw in another stat, about 80% of people in state courts will qualify for a public defender. Mm. 
So we know that the financial wherewithal of people who are being arrested across the country is um, uh, it is low. Um, and so using a tool like money, which doesn't have any efficacy anyway, um, ends up just detaining people and, and making things their own situation worse, um, both from collateral consequences but also the outcome of their case. Um, uh, and then I just want to also put a plug in for kind of this companion tool. Um, so the assessment tool is one way um, folks can kind of see the profile of the um, individuals that they're arresting and booking into their jails. But then the being able to transfer that assessment score into a what do we do with that score right. um, uh, and using some sort of kind of artfully derived um, um, matrix of charge and assessment score to say, you know, there are not maybe as many options in jurisdictions across the country as the federal system with respect to alternatives to incarceration and services, um, but most people don't need much. And so these matrices that you walk through with stakeholders are also about changing the culture of, if not jail, then 3,700 conditions of release. You mentioned the Eighth Amendment at the top. Uh, the excessive bail clause is really about the state having no right to impose upon you conditions that are more than what is uh, required to adequately or uh, uh, to reasonably assure your appearance in court and public safety. And so trying to help jurisdictions understand that, um, you know, for most of these people, the minute they enter their plea, you're going to send them home. Um, and so, and send them home on some maybe no conditions or some low-level conditions of probation. So, so let's not overdo things now and make it worse and violate the risk-need principle. Um, and, and let's sort of shift this culture where not only do we use like to use money, but we also think everybody is really risky. Thank you. Uh, Chris, I do want to come back to you uh, to get your reactions about that. But before we do that, I want to take a short break. And when we come back, after we uh, get Chris's reaction uh, to the question about um, what can be done in terms of an intentional or purposeful uh, approach of a district to change its culture, um, we'll also be talking with Chris and Charisse more about pretrial risk assessment, how it's used, and what kinds of problems it may have. This is Off Paper. When it comes to making a recommendation and decision about whether to release or detain a defendant charged with a criminal offense, two actors in the federal courts play key roles. The pretrial services officer who conducts the investigation, assesses the defendant's risk, and develops a report containing the recommendation. And the magistrate judge, who knows the law, evaluates the officer's report and recommendation, and makes the release or detention decision. In an effort to assist officers and judges in keeping up with the latest legal and practice developments and empirical research relevant to pretrial work, the FJC is pleased to offer pretrial decision-making for magistrate judges and pretrial services officers. FJC educators and peer faculty facilitate this one-day in-district program. The curriculum provides opportunities for scenario-based experiential learning and interactive discussions among judges, officers, and faculty focusing on alternatives to detention. In-district delivery of the program allows it to be customized to the needs of the district. For more information, go to fjc.dcn's Probation and Pretrial Services Education page and click on In-Person and Blended Programs. Welcome back. 
Our guests are Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer Chris Dozier from the District of New Jersey and Sharice Van Oberdeen, CEO of the Pretrial Justice Institute. Uh, so um, where we left off, Chris, uh, I had asked Sharice uh, just to sort of give her perspective on um, – what kinds of things can a district do in an intentional and purposeful way to, to change its culture if it's uh, a, currently a culture that's sort of uh, perhaps more predisposed toward detention than release? And uh, I wanted to just get your perspective on that, uh, you know, as somebody who has uh, been with the federal system for a long time. We've been using the pretrial risk assessment. We'll talk more about that, um, you know, for several years. So, you know, what have you seen in a very practical way that districts have done to transform the way they do business uh, to be at least more open to sort of creating a culture of release? Well, I, I think the most important thing is uh, making uh, pre-trial release decisions, a focus in the agency and working with the stakeholders to understand what are our practices, what is contributing to it, and what, um, what can we do to change it. There's got to want to be um, a change, but I think having those conversations with the important stakeholders, which is the obviously the judges, the federal prosecutors, the defense bar, and, and pretrial, um, is first and foremost. So it may be very simple things that can be done to really help your process, such as are you uh, having hearings in the afternoon rather than the morning, can you if you aren't, to allow pretrial time to do their work and to give you good thorough information for your decision making. Um, is the defense bar comfortable with the interview process for pretrial? I know there are some who aren't because they're concerned the information is going to be used against their defendant. And I think it's very important to have those discussions about how we really do have common goals that we want to get people out as long as we can address the risks and have an understanding that we can address the risks, and we do very well in, in the vast majority of these cases. Um, speaking to the government about not unnecessarily moving for detention and some of the reasons why and some of their concerns and how you can alleviate some of those concerns. One of my favorite um, examples I point to is a a U.S. attorney in a conservative district who spoke on a panel with me, and, and they had a high release rate. And when someone asked her why, she said, because I'm a law enforcement officer and releasing people who can be managed in the community successfully is law. Um, so talking to our prosecutors about using those resources for the right cases um, and with officers, are they using uh, the risk assessment tool in their decision-making? If they're not making recommendations consistent with it, are they staffing that with a supervisor to see uh, why and what they may want to do about it and not having um, knee-jerk reactions to detention? It can be very simple to have a knee-jerk detention reaction because Detention means you know where that person is and you're not going to be worried about them going out and harming somebody. But when 
officers and stakeholders come to understand that there is a very, very low uh, violent uh, recidivism rate in our country. It's really, um, I think that's the big concern that everybody has, but they have to understand the vast majority of these, there is evidence that that will not occur, and, and that's what we have to be mindful of. So making those courageous decisions. Those are some simple things. Some of the bigger things they can do, inviting the administrative office to come in for the drop program. We have seen in some districts the um, release rate increase as much as 20% after the drop program has come in. Um, looking to the FJC in terms of the evidence-based decision-making and other programming that can be helpful. Maybe it's uh, a, a lack of comfort with the alternatives to detention and therefore some other program. And FJC is always uh, very eager to come in and, and help, as are um, PPSO and, and neighboring districts. Um, so I, I think the, the biggest thing I see is that in, in many districts, it's just not a focus. And when there is focus and conversation and dialogue, it tends to improve the situation. So I want to uh, turn the conversation uh, now or maybe back to uh, something that Sharice uh, had mentioned uh, before we went to the break, and that was, uh, or that is, uh, pretrial risk assessment. Um, you know, there's been so much attention focused on this subject over the past few years, and it's become somewhat controversial, and as Sharice uh, suggested, particularly with regard to issues of alleged uh, race bias of the instruments that are being used. Uh, now, such instruments uh, are being used both at the federal and in many state systems. And while there are similarities, there are differences, too, uh, among the, the various instruments. Um, they're being used differently in each system. Um, so, uh, again, Sharice, could you describe, sort of give us some background on the, the, the use of risk assessment in pretrial? It's not something that's necessarily new, but we, we, we are hearing a lot about it now. Uh, why the instruments were created, you know, how they're being used uh, across the, the nation, and what some of the concerns are and how those concerns are being addressed. Sure. Um, thanks, Mark. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how long your listeners have been uh, engaged in pretrial justice work, and at the, at the risk of kind of taking folks on a small history tour, I, I, I do want to give some historical context for assessments. Um, back in the 60s, um, uh, with the Manhattan Bail Project, which some folks might be familiar with, um, we started a process in um, the pretrial sort of services, pretrial justice community of trying to see if we couldn't come up with a set of uh, criteria to make um, uh, suggestions or recommendations to the court that folks were safe enough to be released, or at that time, really, it was simply about whether or not they were likely to come back to court since we didn't have danger or public safety added um, to statutes until the late 80s. And so um, years and years ago, we had the, what was called the VERA, um, the VERA point scale. Um, and it was our first kind of codified attempt at writing down a list of factors that seemed to be uh, correlated with um, people who were likely to come back to court. Um, and, and 
not a scientifically derived instrument by any means. Um, uh, in fact, really kind of done in a way that probably resulted in um, a point scale that favored uh, kind of white middle class folks um, and uh, disproportionately impacted poor people and people of color. Nonetheless, it was the it was our industry or our our kind of our world's first attempt um, at at codifying a list of criteria. You kind of go out through the decades, and as we got more sophisticated as a field, um, we began to employ what we sort of think of today as the modern kind of validated, uh, empirically derived um, uh, risk assessment model, which, um, uh, as you said, the federal system uses um, and has for a long time and and places like the Commonwealth of um, uh, Virginia have used for a long time. Kentucky has used for a long time, and these are tools where data was collected locally and um, uh, analyzed um, to, to highlight uh, and select out the seven or ten factors. Um, about ten years ago, we did a publication that kind of laid out all of these risk tools side by side, tried to compare the factors that were on them, um, and came pretty quickly to the realization that m- many of these locally derived tools um, actually had the same seven or ten items on them. Um, and now fast forward again, you have the Arnold Foundation producing a tool uh, based on collecting these data sets from across the country, including the federal data set, to try to create a standard tool for the country that then could be locally validated um, uh, but really kind of um, tried to advance the state of science in assessment um, and to differentiate between appearance risk and public safety risk because these events are so few and uh, far between um, that all our best attempts at assessing risk have been with a combined score um, uh, and not able to differentiate between your likelihood of appearing in court and your likelihood of staying out of trouble. So a lot of this has been um, done in the last four or five years, this advancement in the science, but we've had assessment for a very, very long time. And the way I tend to describe it now is, um, of all the things a court could consider about me if I were standing before them, hundreds of data points about me, my demographics, my upbringing, my criminal history, my socioeconomic status, um, all the things about me, What I want the court to consider about me are only those items, only those seven or eight or nine items, which are scientifically related to whether or not I'm likely to come back to court and stay out of trouble pending trial. So I like to think of assessment tools as tools that kind of pare down um, the number of items that a court is considering, and not just the number of items. or the the specific items that a court is considering, but weights them appropriately. And so um, in a subjective decision-making framework, um, if Chris is a judge and I'm a judge, we may look at the same seven items, but she may feel more strongly about someone's history of failure to appear than I may feel, and I may feel more strongly about certain uh, crime types in someone's history than she may feel. And so even if she and I were looking at the same seven or eight items, if we weight them differently, we could come to a different conclusion about the risk presented by the person standing in front of us. So these tools pair down the number of items, the specific items, but they also weight them uh, in a way that's related um, to the science associated with prediction. 
So, um, the controversy. Oh, sure, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I think you're getting to what I what what I was going to ask about. Go ahead. Yeah. So the controversy sort of has come into this notion, and it's really. Uh, I think it's less about a, I think the controversy is focused on the tools today, um, but really the tool is standing in as a proxy for criminal history. So I think what people are, are rightly raising is that uh, we have racial bias in criminal histories in this country. Um, more people of color are more likely to be, re- to be arrested. They are more likely uh, to be charged. They are more likely uh, to serve, um, uh, to be convicted. And so they're more likely to have a criminal history. That is not something we can uh, overlook in this dialogue. Um, but that said, um, criminal history has been used for a long time in making an assessment of whether or not someone is likely to flee uh, or poses a risk to the community. Um, and I think assessment tools are an advancement in um, uh, in trying to, to reduce the amount of bias associated with simply looking at uh, the person standing in front of you and their criminal history. Um, but I do acknowledge that, uh, you know, policing practices in this country produce criminal histories for people of color more often than, um, than whites. So it is an important part of the dialogue. Um, I think the solution comes in not throwing out this notion of uh, assessment, but in the kinds of ways that you implement assessment. So first and foremost, we at at the Pretrial Justice Institute support what we call white box versus black box assessment tools. So the algorithm that's used to produce the score, the research that was used to produce the algorithm, all of that should be uh, public and uh, able to be um, viewed um, by other researchers, uh, replicated by other researchers, but also easily understandable to the public. I mean, part of what people unfortunately like about bond schedules is that uh, if I'm arrested for charge X and it is commiserate with um, dollar amount Y, um, that is very transparent. It's ineffective, it's discriminatory, but it's a transparent. Um, and so the transparency of these tools is important. Um, the ability to um, add um, uh, mitigating um, circumstances and being able to argue from um, from the tool itself, like in Kentucky, um, you know, having defenders trained on what the tool means and what it doesn't mean, and making cogent arguments on behalf of their clients from the tool, uh, I think is an important part of a safeguard. Uh, and then measuring. That's the last thing I'll say. Measuring uh, the outcomes. So it's not just about the score, it's then what the court does with the score. So kind of hearkening back to my earlier statements about having kind of a guide or a decision-making framework about what you do uh, in the instance of a, a particular score on, a, on, a, on an assessment tool and making sure that the courts don't uh, either consciously or unconsciously uh, overburden um, people of color with um, conditions of release that they are that sort of are not have no parity with uh, whites who have the same score. I think um, ensuring that we follow those outcomes and are uh, assessing all of our uh, results um, uh, and, and collecting data through a, a racial and ethnic lens um, and making all of that available to the public and engage the public in those conversations and in those policy level decisions around conditions of supervision, uh, I think are an important safeguard 
uh, to the use of a tool. So you can't just drop a tool in and expect um, it as a silver bullet. Um, it isn't, and it needs careful watching. So, uh, Chris, very interested to hear your perspective on the use of pretrial risk assessment, specifically within the federal system, get your opinion about sort of, you know, uh, how it's being used, some of the issues surrounding it, um, what some of your observations are in terms of how it's, you know, where it's being done well. Um, But again, focusing specifically on the federal pretrial risk assessment instrument. Certainly. Well, the the federal pretrial um, has always performed risk assessment. It's the topics in the bail report that we've been doing since it was developed as an entity in the Pretrial Services Act. Um, those same risk factors that we've been looking at all along are, are pretty much those seven, eight, nine that Sharice mentioned. Uh, the just may be weighted differently um, in different jurisdictions. But we've been looking at those risk factors all along. But now we have a scientifically validated tool to assist us in our decision-making, not to make decisions for us, but to assist us in the decision-making process. And it's based on evidence, not just gut, uh, which is what really we were going by before. So the... 2009 study by Luminosity, Dr. Marie Van Lostrin, um, resulted in the risk principle for the federal system for pretrial and the recognition that low-risk cases, when receiving um, too many alternatives to detention, when they're over-conditioned, were more likely to fail. And moderate and higher-risk cases with the appropriate alternatives to detention were more likely to succeed. So the PITRA, the Pretrial Risk Assessment Tool, was developed from that study and that principle, and it's been implemented nationwide. Um, so it was, it was somewhat um, controversial at first when it was rolled out back around 2010 or 11, uh, and admittedly, New Jersey was slow to get on board. I wanted to observe and see what the issues were and how they were worked out before I brought this type of information to my court. And I have to say, once I started look, using it and looking at it, um, I had a, a, a great comfort with it. It really, the outcomes when looking at the data it really correlated perfectly well with the release decisions. Low risk cases were um, not were getting detained at a low rate, um, if if at all. Um, higher risk cases were getting detained at a higher rate, as it should be. Cor- it correlated perfectly with noncompliance. Low risk cases had low violation rates. Higher risk cases had the higher violation rates, although. In the federal system, even our highest risk cases succeed still at about uh, 85% or so. Uh, so I think, you know, the recognition that um, that this risk assessment really does give us a great deal of information. Uh, previously, when we were trying to assess how, uh, who was high risk, we, we based it on conditions of release. So if they're on electronic monitoring, they must be our high risk population, so we should have less of those cases assigned to an officer. But, but it's not necessarily true. Some districts are putting 
electronic monitoring on at a much greater rate um, than I would say they should. Um, and now having this risk assessment tool gives us the evidence to make these kinds of, of determinations, um, be it release detention decisions or resource determinations. Um, all the districts in the federal system are now using the PITRA uh, because it's connected to our funding, so they had to get on the PITRA. But how they're using it to inform them differs. Not all of them are using it before that initial detention release decision. And whether that's because they find they have time constraints or whether it's because there's no buy-in, um, I'm not sure, but I think it's certainly something that needs to be examined more closely and districts really need to understand that it has become a tool that has really been exceptionally helpful to not only the courts but us as managers in making decisions. Um, when I, I can now look at my workload and say, if there are low-risk cases in custody, why is it, and delve deeper. And, and, and I will say there are some cases that that risk assessment tool just cannot pick up every factor there is to consider. And we examine those cases, and I think that's a practice that should be happening in every district, that managers should be looking at are low-risk cases being held, are low-risk cases being put on restrictive conditions that are unnecessary, because if they are, they're more likely to fail. And are high-risk cases being monitored properly if they're being released? So um, our PITRA is now being validated for supervision, so um, that's a good thing. I think one of the things that's a limitation for our PITRA is it is one tool for failure to appear and re-arrest and does not have a violence trailer. The good news is we have very low uh, violent recidivism in the country because we primarily release low-risk cases. Um, but that means it's not easy to conduct a study to be able to assess violence in an empirical way. Um, so I think as we can develop the risk assessment with more granularity, it'll be able to even better inform us. Um, but I think it's really important that districts are bringing that information and the results of that study that resulted in that risk principle and that risk assessment tool to their stakeholders and having conversations about what's going on. And I might add there's, um, there's a significant amount of data available to districts on our JNET um, to look at how they are performing. And if they're not looking at those H tables, they should take some time to do it and share it with your stakeholders. Um, because being able to compare yourself to like districts or to your circuit averages or, your, or the national average, or even to your performance in previous years compared to current years, it really helps inform us about what is happening in district and why it is happening. Um, so that's what I recommend. I want to thank you both very much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Chris Dozier is the Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer for the District of New Jersey, and Sharice Fano-Berdeen is CEO of the Pretrial Justice Institute based in Rockville, Maryland. In the next episode of Off Paper, we'll continue our conversation with Chris and Sharice, focusing on bail reform efforts at the state level, issues regarding jails, and the collateral consequences of pretrial detention. I hope you'll join us. Off Paper is produced by Paul Vanvass. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.